Amen. Romans 8. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 8. We're going to try to get through verses 1 through 11 this morning. Romans 8, 1 through 11. Like I said, this morning we're going to look at one of the most beautiful announcements in Scripture that has been made available to all those that have been born again. How many know it's just not made for denomination? It's just not been made for just one certain group of people. But this declaration, this beautiful announcement is for whoever believes and in Jesus Christ and has been born again. So that includes a lot of people. So often we can think of and we can focus on just inside the four walls of our own church. But I say this often right now around the United States, there is thousands, if not millions of people that are meeting in church settings just like this, that are brothers and sisters in Christ. And then you think about around the world, all the services that are taking place. The thing about our daughter, Lizzie, who's already been in a, in a service in England, in a church that preaches the word. And, and so I am just so grateful that this announcement has been given to us by the Apostle Paul, but been made possible through Jesus Christ. And what about those that don't believe in Jesus Christ? What about those that, again, maybe they, uh, we call them sometimes non-Christian, unbelievers, those that aren't born again? The truth of the matter is, is they are hostile towards God, just like we were at one point. And again, I want to encourage you to continue to pray, because again, this announcement we're going to look at today is for everyone. It's for everyone who comes to the knowledge and the understanding and, the, and, the, and, and makes Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior who's born again. I want to I press upon you more than ever. Continue to pray for your loved ones. Continue to pray for your neighbors. Continue, again, to pray for those that you know that don't know Jesus Christ. Prayer is powerful. God hears every word that you speak. And I'd encourage you again, the reason why the Lord Jesus Christ has not come back yet is because He tarries. There's more people that are to come to Him. So continue to pray. What we're going to do is we're going to read through these verses and then we're going to come back and we're going to work through them a verse at a time. So in verse 1 it says this, There is therefore, now I just want to point something out to you again. Remember through our study, uh, Therefore means, Paul is saying, we need to look back. So we need to look back at what he had just said in chapter 7. So keep that in your mind. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh... And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live accordingly to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have that Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit's life becomes of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He will raise Jesus Christ from the dead, who will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is a powerful portion of Scripture here that we have the opportunity and the honor to walk through this morning. We cannot miss any of this. In fact, this is a portion of Scripture I know in my Bibles, underline, highlight it. Because if you don't get this, and if you don't understand this, and sometimes this is preached so wrong to where it almost does put condemnation on you, which is impossible if you're in Christ, if you have been born again. I thought it would be important to talk about this word condemnation that we see right off the bat. And again, understanding that Paul is saying, therefore, remember what I've said the last seven chapters here. I, I, Paul is showing us man's depravity. God, Paul is showing us how we cannot keep the law. That it's almost... It's impossible. It's impossible for us to keep the law. So just keep that in your mind, that that's what, where we're coming from. And, and up until this point, it's been, man, pretty heavy, hasn't it? I mean, we have to, at one point, come to a place where we say, ah, I need a Savior. Ah, I need the Holy Spirit. I cannot do this by myself. But this word condemnation here simply means this. The act of pronouncing someone guilty after weighing the evidence. Now that came out of Webster's Dictionary. Let me give you what the word condemnation means in the Greek. It simply means this. No sentence. No sentence. No judgment. Hopefully right now that is clearing some things up for some of you. Because often we think of condemnation. What do we think? Guilt. I've heard many people who have read this scripture here saying, but I feel guilty. But listen, this is not talking about our idea of feeling guilty. This is coming to the understanding that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that we are no longer condemned. How many know, though, Jesus was? For three hours. We've seen that last week. The last couple of weeks, we've walked through uh, Him on the cross. We walked through last week His resurrection. But there is no condemnation to those. This word here can also be defined as a, a courtroom language. And often in this day, Paul would use that type of language. No condemnation simply declares a means of being found innocent of an accusation. Now, if we go back to Romans 1-7, through 7, we'll see there's accusations there. I don't think any of us, if we understand our depravity, can run from those things. 
But how many know that we don't have to embrace them because of what Christ did on the cross? So many people read this verse and they think it's condemnation, guilt, and they hold themselves captive. Let me ask you this. Do you still feel guilt when you're outside the will of God and understanding the will of God is missing the mark, just like an archer? And that is what? Sin. So when you sin, when you find yourself missing the mark, do you not feel guilt? I think we all do. Until what? Until you come to a place of repentance and you're forgiven. Until you come to the place of understanding that you have wronged God, that you have violated His standards. And then we're forgiven. And there's no more guilt. Do we remember those things? We definitely do. You've heard me say, and I've actually taught on this, that Again, God is the only one with holy forgetfulness. He says that when He forgives us, He casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. He throws it into the sea of forgetfulness. And, and I believe that 100%. But how many know that we don't have that gift or that ability of holy forgetfulness? And the reason why we don't is because we learn from our mistakes. God is perfect. He doesn't have to learn from and He doesn't make mistakes. But we as human, as flesh, we remember these things. But don't allow that guilt to rule you. Don't allow that thing that when you walked outside of God's will, as long as you've taken the steps of repentance to strangle you, to chokehold you, to take the breath of life out of you. So we see this word of condemnation as this idea of there's no sentence. No guilty verdict has been found. By the grace of God, all believers, true believers, and you're going to hear me use that word this morning, true believers will not face condemnation of God or face a sentence. The Bible clearly teaches that all human beings will be brought before judgment. Even us as born-again believers. In 2 Corinthians 5.10 it says this, and I'm going to get into this a little bit this morning because this is also uh, confusing to some folks. But in 2 Corinthians 5.10 it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. Now, I want to kind of dive into this this morning just a little bit. I don't think we're going to get off on a bunny trail, but I think it's important that we understand what this judgment is and, and understand, too, that our judgment as believers is going to be much different than the judgment of unbelievers. Okay, so I want to define that. And we also see from Scripture, the Gospel of John, that Christ Himself will be the one that judges. He's going to be the one that judges. It says this in John five twenty six through 27 For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So again, one day we're going to stand before Jesus Christ and we're going to be judged. 
In John 3, in the second part of verse 18, it says this, Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. How many know that we are naturally born under the condemnation of God? Each one of us were born into sin. We cannot escape it. I don't know about you. We all have that in common. Every person that you encounter today, every person that you see this week cannot escape this. We have this all in common. But it's by the grace of Jesus Christ. And because of our belief in being born again, we will not be found guilty on Judgment Day. Is that not good news? That is great news. I pray that everybody listening this morning, whether you're online or uh, at home or, or here, that you understand that freedom that Christ has given us through the price that was paid through His sacrifice. Now, there is going to be a definite separation one day. You know, you've heard me say this. In the last two years, I've seen a separation in what we even call the church taking place right now. I believe that we're seeing a separation of true believers and false believers. I believe that we're seeing a separation of those that truly worship Jesus of the Bible and those that worship a false Jesus. Maybe you're not aware of this, but I know some of you are. Because, again, you pay attention to what's happening in what we call the big church or in our world. But how many know, man, there is lots of onslaught right now trying to make Jesus into something that He's not. I heard something just recently that was just so weird about this one. He's not a pastor. He's not a priest. He is... He, is a gay individual that is trying to make Jesus into something that he's not, but he does preach behind a pulpit every week in a church. He was saying this week that when Jesus called Lazarus, come forth, he was telling him that Jesus was telling us it's okay to come out of the closet as gay. This was on the internet this past week. Folks, there's going to be a separation. I believe that it's taking place right now. I believe that God's making it evidence. In Matthew 25, 32-34, Jesus talks about this. Matthew 25, 32-34. We need to be aware of this. We need to self-examine ourselves. To really look in deep and say, Am I truly serving the Jesus of the Bible instead of the Jesus that I've made? But it says this in Matthew 25, 32 through 34. Before him will be gathered all the nations. That means everyone. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come you, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. Jesus is talking about a clear separation here. 
In this day, it will be evident. In this day, you will be able to know that what is a wheat and what is a tear. Like I said, I really feel like we kind of need to go into this a little bit to be faithful to God's Word. But what is the judgment seat of Christ? And I got this from BibleReference.com. It says this, There's a good deal of confusion regarding the judgment that follows death. Many people believe that Christians are not subject to any kind of judgment because all their sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is true. However, certain Bible verses declare that Christians will indeed be judged at what is called the judgment seat or the Rima seat of Christ. One such verse is in Romans 14:10-12. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, so then each one of us will give account of himself to God. Paul is speaking here to the Roman believers. He has a similar message to the believers in Corinth. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And that's in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. In context, it is clear that in both incidents that Paul is addressing Christians and non-believers here. He's speaking to both. Now think about that. In this day, there was people in the church, because this is in the church of Corinth that he's addressing, that he's addressing unbelievers and believers. We've often heard heard it said this, uh, if you go buy a McDonald's hamburger and go park in your garage, it does not make it a McDonald's, right? That's a true statement. I've heard that for years. You buy a hamburger from McDonald's, go park in your garage, it does not make it a McDonald's. It's still a garage. Just because you go to church does not make you a believer in Jesus Christ. It does not make you a believer if you go to a prayer meeting. It does not make you a believer if you go to Bible studies. Listen, I promote all those things. But again, that is not what makes you a believer. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Us coming to the place that we understand our depravity and coming to the place of repentance and receiving a gift that we could never get from anywhere else. So continue here. It says this, Unlike the great white throne judgment of unbelievers, the judgment seat of Christ is not for the purpose of condemnation. Or remember what our word condemnation means here. Uh, sentencing you to judgment. We know that believers cannot be punished for sin because Christ bore that punishment on the cross. Amen. This is why I can stand here last Sunday and Good Friday and tell you, listen, for three hours Jesus felt the weight of the world, the wrath of God, the sin, our sin on His shoulders. Why we can say that, and we can say it with the uh, the assurance that it's true, that it's real. And I don't know about you, but it takes the weight off my shoulders, knowing that Jesus was condemned, so I wouldn't have to be. 
rather than a judgment of condemnation or of a determiner of salvation. There are two purposes for the Brema seat of Christ. First, according to Romans 14.10-12, believers are to be given account of ourselves to God. What kind of account, you ask? What will we have to give that day? What will we be, have to tell and what will we have to see? According to 1 Corinthians 3, 10-13, we will be judged based on what we have built upon the foundation, which is Christ. What have we built on the rock that we claim is our foundation? We make these choices throughout our whole life. But the question is, is how much do we add to the foundation of our salvation? Have we built upon the rock with gold and silver and precious stones, those things that last for eternity, or with wood, hay, and stubble, which will be burned up? Have we rejoiced in the trials that we've faced so that our faith is proved genuine to the glory of God? And the reference they have down here is 1 Peter 1, verses 6-7. Have we escaped the corruption of the world? And you'll find that verse in 2 Peter 1.4. That's a powerful thought. Have we escaped the corruption of this world? How many know that it's so easy to allow this world to corrupt you? It's so easy to accept things. Ah, Everybody else is doing it. Why not? You know, I'm going to tell you something. One thing that really gives me a bellyache is when things come up that are so, so horrible in our world. And it seems like, especially the church, it seems like we take a stand just for a short time and then we back off. Or we forget. We don't take that stand fully. We don't take it with conviction. We don't take that stand Standing on the rock and based on God's word. I made the statement a couple, or I think it was two sermons ago. Go, go woke, go broke. I'm, I'm fully behind that. There's certain things that me and Missy have not partaken in in the last few years. Things that have come up, we just said, no, no longer going to participate in that. Things that you could actually say are not bad things to be involved in. But have we been saved from the corruption of this earth? Or we have allowed it to corrupt us? Or have we succumbed to the lust of the eyes? Often we think of the lust of the eyes as just maybe that sexual attraction, but how many know it's much more than that? can be what your neighbor has. It can be those things that you want and you don't have. Those things that you're striving for. The things that the world has that we supposedly have to give up. How many know that in Christ you don't give anything up? Do you, do you understand that? Often I've heard people say that. Well, if I give my life to Christ, I have to give this up. No, you're set free from those things that are going to bring death. The wages of sin is what? Death. 
The wages of sin is death. Boy, if we could only have the Holy Spirit screaming that every time we decided to sin, right? We decided to speak wrongly to our spouse. If we decided to, again, take that step away from God or miss the mark. If only the Holy Spirit, and listen, <laughs> He is faithful. But my, my point is this, are you being sensitive enough to the Spirit? Do you hear the Spirit of God? You know, our better man table, it's been good to have discussion afterwards and to be able to, again, just recognize this last week we were talking about just recognizing God's voice. That still small voice. Listen, it's not that loud, audible, booming voice that is going to tell you, no, don't do it. But it's that still, small, familiar voice. I often say this. Again, I, I believe Scripture actually shows us that the way that God speaks us, the Spirit speaks us, that still small voice is in our own thoughts. But again, do we go to Scripture? You know, I, I use this excuse all the time, or example all the time. Debbie Dollar, if I were to hear that small voice tell me to go over there and shoplift after service, or Charleston Chews, Is that from God? No, according to His Word, we shall not steal. So again, what is what, what is the Spirit of God saying to us? Another thing here, we're going to be judged for how we control our tongue, as we see in James 3, 1-9. through 9. How many love that portion of Scripture? These are the kind of things that will be Exposed at the judgment seat that the believer will be at. The second function of the judgment seat of Christ is that of God's rewarding us for the service and good deeds that we have done. The Bible says this, believers will receive a crown for many different things based on how faithful we have served Christ. And among those crowns we will receive an imperishable crown, it says, for faithful endurance through trials. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-25. That's another verse that you should highlight, circle, and put up on your fridge or wherever you go visit much. I think it would change the way that we go through trials. I've been guilty of it when I go through a trial of complaining. God, when is this going to be over? You know, I want to say something, too, that I need to clear up because I was so convicted of this, and it's just right now it's, the Holy Spirit brought it to my mind. I've been telling you for a long time to stop asking what and ask God, or stop asking why, but ask God what. I want to make something clear. That is not an impartable sin, okay? I believe that our as we grow in our relationship with Christ, that again, I know in my own life after being and serving the Lord for, it's going to be 43 years here shortly, that I've gotten to the place when things come my way. You know, this this last week we had something. Surprise! I actually think I handled it, I think you can testify this fairly well. It's just like, okay, God, 
you're our provider, you're our provision. This didn't catch you off guard, so I'm not going to go whine about it. I'm not going to cry about it. In fact, God, I see your provision through this. I see your hand. But what I want to say is this, especially for you that are newer believers that don't have 43 years under your belt, and some of you here have longer and more years than that under your belt. And how many know, thank God there is no seniority in heaven because that doesn't matter. So don't hear me this morning. Listen, some of you can be saved here for two years and supersede where I'm at in my faith really quick. What I want to say is this. I was convicted because I've been saying, don't ask what or why. But I realized that Jesus asked that question in the garden, didn't he? Why, why this cup? Even though he knew the will of God, he still came to a point where he was saying, why? Why can't this cup pass from me? So I just want to clear that up a little bit. But I think our good response, of, our response in us should be, what, God? What are you showing me? But again, I go back to this, and it, and it talks about that idea of us being judged and, and given this crown about how we have faithfully endured through trials. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 25. It's called the crown of rejoicing. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19, we see a crown of righteousness for our faith in Him as our only source of righteousness. Understanding that there's nothing good in us. This week I had a contractor at work who said, who I've been working with for some time, a non-believer say, you're a good man. And my response right away, if you ever say that to me here, what I'm going to tell you is this, no, the only good in me is Jesus. I was able to pause and put a pause in the conversation and I was able to share with him because of what Christ has done in my life that I can be called righteous. But again, not my righteousness, but His. In 2 Timothy 4.8, we see this crown of glory. And then we see in Romans 8.18 8, and 2 Corinthians 4.17, the crown of life, which is that promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And we can see more references there in 1 John 2.25 and James 1, verse 12. But however, the no, no condemnation involves more than acquittal on Judgment Day. In Romans 8.1, the Apostle Paul speaks in the present tense as evidenced by the word now. Also notice the word therefore, which points the reader to the previous passages, passages in Romans, especially Romans chapter 7, 21-25. Paul describes his own struggle with this sinful nature there. A struggle that each and every one of us as believers will experience. Paul writes these words in Romans 7.21, Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Then he says this in Romans 7, verse 24, What a wretched man I am. Paul is expressing his hatred hatred for his sinful nature, which continues the war against him and the new nature of Christ. 
I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you hate the sinful nature in your life? When you come to a place and you sin, do you hate it? Because listen, that is the only way that you're going to get victory in it. So many people embrace sin as a friend. Sometimes even as a comfort, I've seen it. And we have a good way of especially coming together in church groups and uh, I've seen this for a long time in men's group, and this is what I love about Better Man. I don't think any of us have sat at those tables, discussed, and said, oh, I'm, I'm right there with you, buddy. Don't worry about it. It's, we all face this. No, I think it's been being truthful, confronting sin. So often we want to embrace it. Paul is going to take this a little deeper in Romans 8. And we're going to see that when he teaches believers are not only free from bondage of sin, but they are free from inner emotions and thoughts that tend to bring up feelings of condemnation or that idea of we're going to be sentenced to the Christian when we do commit sin. As we continue in verse 1, it says this, but those who are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? And I thought about giving you seven steps what it means to be a true Christian. And I thought, no, let's, let's stick to what the Bible has to say. But remember that justification completely releases every true believer from sins of bondage and the penalty of death that comes with it. Remember what I said earlier, the wages of sin is death. Being a Christian is not just having an outward identification in Christ, but being a part of Christ. Let me reread that. Being a Christian is not just having an outward identification in Christ, but being a part of Christ. I want to go to a portion of Scripture just to, and because of time, we'll find it in John 3, 5. How many remember the story of Nicodemus? When Jesus is explaining salvation to Nicodemus, he actually, you know what, let's turn there because my writing in my notes is pretty sloppy. John 3, 5. Let's see what Jesus has to say here. about true conversion. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Here Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus this idea of what salvation is. What is true salvation? It's being born of the Spirit. In Romans 8, 2, we see this. In verse 2, it says this. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free. Free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Got written in my notes here. Christians are free from the law of sin and death. Which means, although they will commit sin, the law no longer has power to condemn them. 
Now, see, we have to be careful here because there is like two different laws here that Paul is going to look at. One of them is the law, the law of Moses, which can we all agree none of us can keep perfectly? None of us. But then he talks about in verse 2 here the law of the Spirit. And again, I want to clarify this. In some of your Bibles, it probably says that for the power of the Spirit of life has set you free. And in the, the Greek, that word law really translates to the power. The power. It's, it, it, the word law here means a law that doesn't change, kind of like the law of gravity. If I drop something from here to here, no matter what I do, it's going to hit the floor. That is a law. And just like in verse 2 here, for the law or the power of the Spirit of life has set you free. The reason why we've been set free from this law, we have the power, I should say, the power of this, this Spirit. It's because of what Jesus completed on the cross and through His resurrection and His ascension. In Romans 8.3, it says this, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not. Now again, he's talking about the law of Moses. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. Because believers are in Christ, they have the joy of being counted as righteous simply because of Christ's righteousness. Now, I used to, for years, this would just blow my mind. Anybody else ever struggle with it? I'm righteous. (laughs) Because there's something in you saying, no, no, you messed up this morning. You messed up yesterday. How many know that our righteousness is in Christ and Christ alone? It's through Him. And we need to understand that. In Philippians 3.9 it says this, And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Depends on faith. Paul also points out that a true Christian, although they struggle, will not live according to the flesh. That is, they will not continue living in a state of sinfulness. Now, this is what's so alarming to me in the church today. And I believe this shows clear separation. Paul makes it clear we don't live in that continued state of sin. How about how the church has embraced those that live together in fornication in the day that we're living in? 
Listen, this happens all around. There is no such thing in a lot of churches as church discipline anymore. And how many know that church discipline, true church discipline, is not about exposing, but <laughs> loving someone? It's one of the most difficult things as a pastor. Often it never gets to the state where we have to bring it to the front of the church and and because usually people, they'll cut tail and run. I have seen over my 10 years, people walk through this and see God do amazing things in their life. But I think about how that's embraced. I think about People I know that go to church every Sunday, Wednesday, and they live in the state of fornication. (laughs) And they truly believe that they are hearing from God. Again, I would bring it to our attention, what separates us from God? Sin. Sin. The Bible says that even if I speak to my wife wrong, that God does not hear my prayers. They do not leave the ceiling and the roof that I'm in. And fornication is just not one of those things, but it's one thing that's so stuck out in my mind because I, I work with a lot of people. I uh, Social media, one thing, is, is as bad as it is, there's times where it's allowed me, it's using it as a pulpit to speak to many people about the Word of God. Think of some people that I went to school with. They go to church every Sunday. They've been on missions trips. They do this and that, but you live in a state of fornication, believing that they have relationship with God. It's that idea of living in that state of sinful living. Because none of us are without sin, right? The Bible tells us that. The Bible says we fool ourselves if we believe that. I don't know about you, every little sin, I I ask the Holy Spirit to bring it to my remembrance, or I ask the Holy Spirit to show me at the time, but how many ever sit in bed at night and say, God, did I violate you today? Did I violate your law? Did I, did I, uh, I know I do, and I ask the Holy Spirit to recall things that I need to repent of, because I don't want nothing between me and God the Father, especially in this world that we walk into where we need the guidance. Of God. In Romans 8 5, it says this For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. Where is your thought? How many know that often sin starts with a thought? That's where the process starts. There's a book out there, and you've got to be careful because one author is. Uh, I would not recommend, but it's called The Battlefield of the Mind. Francis Permain, I think is his name. I read it years ago. I would actually say that that's a great book to get to read because you understand where sin starts is in our thoughts. It's in our contemplation. It's in our thinking. And Paul is talking about this right here. Paul is describing the difference between living by the flesh, which uh, which is our selfish, sinful human uh, wants and 
and our desires, again, talking about the thought process. <coughs> but then he also talks about those that are living by the Spirit. The true believer or true Christian, as you'll hear me refer to in this sermon, has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. It's part of the new covenant. I love when we take communion. Again, it was a new covenant that we've been given because of what Christ has done. And false Christians don't have the Holy Spirit. Either you have the Holy Spirit and you belong to Christ, or you don't and you're not a Christian. Anyone that teaches that the Holy Spirit comes upon a Christian and a separate act of, of, of salvation, I'll just simply say this, Scripture does not support that. I'll even say you go as far as saying that it's a false doctrine. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it makes it very clear. It makes it clear that the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes upon the believer at the time of salvation. And that believer is baptized into the church. And if this does not take place, then they are not part of the body of Christ. They are not a Christian. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says this, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free, and we were made to drink of one spirit. This takes place upon you being born again. And how do we know that if we have the true Spirit of God. How do we know that? What's some evidence of that? Well, I believe the true evidence is spelled out very clear in Scripture in Galatians. It's seen in what we call the fruit of the Spirit. And you can see that in Galatians 5, 22-23. I will read them off for you. It is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And it says at the end of these things, against such things there is no law. These are the fruit that should be generated in a true Christian. This should be what's on our minds and on our thoughts. But how many know that this is only revealed through the Holy Spirit and imparted to us through a supernatural impartation. I think about that phrase here in Galatians 5, 23. It says this, Against such things there is no law. What, what does that mean? What is Paul conveying here? What he's saying is this, is it's pretty simple, is that we can actually put these things and make them law. And what Paul is saying is, listen, don't do that. Understanding again that we cannot fulfill the law. Understanding that only the Holy Spirit and seeing the idea of law is that... that um, that idea of... Uh, 
lost my spot here. my thought here. Sorry about that. See if I can get it here. Oh, there it is right there. The law, as in dictionary for the definition of righteousness or sin, justice or injustice, it merely means that we have seen it before. The ultimate goal of keeping the law is love. The one who loves Jesus obeys the law. Again, I, I've said this before. All the commandments in the Bible that we're given, even the commands of Christ that we see in the New Testament, the only way that we can keep them is through love. Do we love God? Do we love Jesus Christ? Do we understand what He did for us? This is what's going to drive us. This is what's going to cause our minds to be on other things. Do I put my Savior again? I think of Pastor Ted Branshaw who said this here, I think, several years ago. Do I find myself being entertained by things that have put Jesus on the cross? It's quite a thought, isn't it? Am I involved in things that put Jesus Christ on the cross? So what is the difference between the person that has their mind set on the things of the Spirit and those that have their mind set on the things of flesh? It leads to us going two different directions, that's for sure. One leads to life, one leads to death. We've seen that in verse chapter 2 of our text. Sin always leads to death. And focusing on the things of the Spirit always lead to life and peace. The law of the Spirit of life is what frees us from the law of sin and death. Paul makes that clear. But God doesn't intend us to stop right there. We have not just been changed from the status from death to life. We have changed roads from the road of death to the path of life. The idea that we keep on going down that road, that we don't stop, we don't pause, we don't turn around and go back. That's what true Christians do. One of my favorite teachers at one time said this, that they had lived in this part of Texas for quite a few years. I think he said it was about 10 years and they had lived in this house that they bought and And when he would leave his church to go home, he always took the same way home. And at the end of the ten years, they sold that house. And they bought another house on the opposite side of town. And he was saying that it took him several weeks. And it took him to the point that he actually showed up at his old house, wondered why the key didn't work in the front door. And after pounding on the door, the people that bought his house came to the door and said, hey, You don't live here anymore. As born-again believers, we don't live 
in what we came out of anymore. It's choosing to go down that different road. It's choosing to do and live by the Spirit of God and think about the things of God. And and again, I said something this past week on social media. How many realize that the Christian life is a disciplined life? How many know it doesn't come easy, does it? Am I the only one that sometimes finds it very hard? Am I the only one that finds it hard to think on those things that we're supposed to? I'm glad by the head shakes here and some grunts that I don't feel alone. But as true Christians, we are those who have received Jesus Christ as our Savior, who trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, who understands because of that sacrifice we have forgiveness. If we ask, if we turn from our sins and turn to God. I would encourage you this morning as we close. For one thing to understand that that word condemnation, please grasp this, does not mean that it's guilt. But it simply means that we have been set free. That there is no sentence for those that are in Christ. I think it would be good, as Paul says and instructs us, to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. What does that look like? Well, we talked about that a little bit. What is your mindset on? How are you living? Are you living in a state of sin? Listen, I know this can be confusing for some because how many know that addiction is real? But how many know that Jesus can break that addiction? Listen, again, I'll say this often. I believe Scripture points this out. That Again, that, that in your addiction, you know what's going to set you free in that addiction? It's taking one step to obedience. Taking one step. Most of the time when I see people that are in, in addiction and they can't be set free, it's because they're not willing to take that one step of obedience. Most people I see in addiction, it takes that one step, they're free. And they work towards, and God and the Holy Spirit leads them to complete freedom in that area. Another question I'd ask you, or something I'd like you to think about in closing this morning is this. Where's your mindset? What are you thinking of? Are you thinking of things of this earth or things of heaven? I'm going to be turning, is it 53? 53. I'm going to be turning 53 here shortly. Doesn't seem that old. I don't know where the time went. Thinking to myself, where where did time go? I don't consider myself old yet. There's some of you here that are much older than me. Some of you here that are younger than me, but... I think we can all come to the point of recognize that time, it's precious. In some aspects, time is short. What is your mindset on? The things of the world, the things of heaven. 
as I get older, I want it to be more towards things of heaven. Things of earth is just not important to me. We need to understand what Jesus Christ did completely. Embrace it. That he has set us free that we might live for him. Why don't we stand this morning as I close in prayer? Father, we thank you today again for the provision of your son, Jesus Christ. We sang about it this morning in our praise time. We rejoice in it. Cause us never to forget it. Expresses your love towards each and every one of us. Expresses your love to everyone in this world, whether they receive it or reject it. And Jesus, we thank you for being obedient to the cross. Cause us to remember that daily. Cause us to rejoice in it. Cause us to recognize it as our only hope. And Holy Spirit, we pray today that you guide and you lead us. So often, you're so mistreated. But you were left, Jesus said, as our helper. The one that would be with us till the end. And you are God, part of the Trinity. You are the one that we can call upon in our time of need. You are the one that convicts us of our sin bring us back to the rightful place to where there is no condemnation, there is no sentence you're the one that brings us to the place of having again intimacy with God the Father so Holy Spirit we need your help we surrender to you pray as we read the Word of God that you bring it to life to each and every one of us. We know it's alive, but again, even the man that doesn't know you can read it and it'd be like dead letters. But us who are alive in Christ, cause us, Lord, to read it. Cause us, Holy Spirit, to see the life that's given through it wisdom for walking through this world. The promises that have been awarded to us through Christ. So Father, I pray this morning, Lord, as we leave this place, that you cause us to be in tune, cause us to hear the Spirit. Cause us to rely upon Him. Cause us to be obedient what you've called us to and cause it Lord to happen because we love you with our whole hearts so Father I just ask Lord that you just continue to guide us lead us be with us until we return Lord I do pray Lord that we see the opportunities this week that we have because 
God, I, I used to pray, Lord, that you'd place opportunities in front of us. But, God, I believe you do that all the time. But I believe that we, a lot of times, we don't see them. So allow our eyes to be open. Allow us to walk out our calling in a worthy manner. And that can only be done through the power of the Holy Spirit that you've given us and placed inside of each one of us. So we thank you, Father, for your love, for your kindness, for your mercy that endures forever. And I pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.